Well, when I was about Bunny's age, my 10-year-old daughter, in, in Texas, there was a, a certain game we used to like to play. And you played it with a bike, and one kid on a bike, and as many skateboards as you could find. And back then, uh, skateboards are a little bit smaller than they are today, okay? And so our neighborhood was kind of the hill country, uh, and, and kind of on the outskirts of San Antonio. And so most of the driveways were elevated going down into the, the street. And so the sport of the game was basically to slide as many skateboards down the driveways as you could and have one guy riding his bike through the middle of it all, and, you know, having to weave and, you know, he's riding as fast as he can. And the, the object of the game was basically to get your skateboard in between the front and back tire where if, if you got it in front of him, it was likely he could either maybe even run over your skateboard and maybe even break it. Um, he may stay on the bike. But the object was if you could get that skateboard slid between the front and the back tire, you could propel the guy off his seat over his handlebars onto the pavement, and then you win. And basically, if you get him off his bike, then you get to be the next rider, okay? So at least I thought it was a great idea. Um, my friends thought it was all great. And I remember one day I was on the bike, and I'm riding as fast as I can. There's probably about, you know, 10 different skateboards going in different directions. And one guy managed to get one right behind my back wheel and propel me right over the handlebars. And I just did this great slide right down the, the street face first. And I'm laying there bleeding. And my friend Craig's younger brother, Johnny, had a green machine. I don't know if any of you remember the green machine, but I, I got a couple of thumbs up on that. Green Machine was like the ultimate big wheel. This was before the days of, you know, video games. Um, and so you had to have a little more imagination in how you played. And you got excited about things like a green machine. So this is a big wheel that could spin like crazy. Big old wheel. And anyway, so Johnny, as I'm laying there, decides to run over me with his green machine. And I remember looking up and watching Johnny laugh, and then he did it again. And so I'm laying there hurt and mad, and I actually started to cry, 10 years old. And, and then suddenly it hit me. I looked at my, I looked at my hand, and, and there was blood all over my hand. And I realized, awesome, I have this precious commodity here. You see, I was a little bit of a nerdy kid, and what I had always, what I had wanted for months before Christmas Back then, we didn't have the internet either, so we had Sears catalogs, okay? And, and so I had looked, there was this page that had microscopes on it. And I thought, when I was 10, if I could get a microscope for Christmas, I would be the happiest man on earth, okay? That was going to bring ultimate joy. I could look at all kinds of stuff, and somehow this didn't all work. I ended up as a pastor instead of a scientist. But... Um, I, I got this microscope for Christmas, and, and you know, I was looking at feathers and looking at all kinds of things, but I really wanted to look at blood, but I've always had this aversion to needles. And, and so the idea of kind of drawing my own lifeblood to look at, I just oh, I didn't like that. But now I realize I got a lot of blood here to look at under my microscope. So I got off the pavement, uh, yelled at a couple friends to come with me, ran in up into my room, left quite the blood trail for my mom to have to clean up, and looked at my lifeblood under my microscope. And that leads us to our first point this morning. And that is that lifeblood is precious. It is. Lifeblood 
is precious. And by the way, um, if you're just joining us inside your worship guide, you will find a uh, sermon guide here that you can follow along with. Uh, most of the texts that uh, we'll be talking about today are, are here, um, and hopefully you'll hang on to this and you can kind of look back and, and um, be encouraged and, and remember the message. So we see in, in the Bible that lifeblood is precious, and I say this based upon a, a principle found in creation, God's creation, that, that blood represents life. And, and so when you go and you give blood, you who are not as scared of needles as I am, um, when you give blood for someone else, what you're really doing is you're giving the possibility of life to someone else who may need it. Well, in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we know this to be true. You can lose a little bit of blood, but if you lose too much blood, what happens? You, you lose your, your life. Now, kids, do you know where the meat that you enjoy comes from? Where does it come from? I've heard, I heard a cow, I heard the store, I think. Um, you know, you might think, yeah, I go to Publix or Walmart or Winn-Dixie. I, I like the sales they have on meat on the weekends at Winn-Dixie. I shouldn't tell you about that because it may not be, there's limited supply. But um, there, there usually is, um, there, you know, they've got steaks on sale on weekends. So I like to kind of go and, 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 and pick those up sometimes. And, and you know, it's easy to think, yeah, it's all packaged, it's great, but do you, you know where the meat that we enjoy comes from? Sorry if you're a vegetarian, by the way. Um, but you know, it comes from the life of animals that lose their lives so that we may eat meat. That's the benefit of, of hunting, is you come to recognize the truth of where your food actually comes from. I remember shooting my very first deer, okay, and, and, and I remember at first it was just a target, and there was the adrenaline that soon became sorrow. When, when, I, when I got up to the animal and it wasn't dead yet, I hit it and I was all excited, you know, can I hit this thing at 120 yards or whatever, and when I got up to it, I watched this majestic creature dying in front of me because of what I had done. And so I got to help my dad clean the deer. So we hauled it off to a tree, tied it up, pulled it up on the tree, and my dad is a surgeon. He's retired now, but at the time he was um, uh, quite good with a knife. He still is. But, but and so dad has me basically holding the deer and basically pulling flesh apart and skin apart while he does the carving work, okay, and so he was very good at directing blood splatter, all right, not only cutting up the meat, but I was covered in blood when we were done, and he didn't have a drop on him, okay, so, so it reminded me that that whole process of cleaning this deer, it reminded me that the shot that I took and the meat that I ate cost a beautiful animal its life. And even animal blood is precious. God made every animal. And Jesus said that he notices 
when even a small bird falls from a tree. So it might be easy for us when we read the Old Testament to think that the millions of animals that were sacrificed by the Jews had little worth. But actually the opposite is true. That the blood of the sacrificial animal was precious. And actually, when sin offerings took place, it was very personal. Leviticus chapter 4 prescribes the practice of the sin offering. And actually, the, the sacrifice is kind of interesting that, that it varied based upon the station of the person who had sinned and had to then go present a sin offering. So a, a priest would need to sacrifice an unblemished bull, according to Leviticus chapter 4. Okay? Now, if you were a leader, like in, in a position of political leadership, you would have to bring an unblemished male goat for your sin offering. Now, a common person, like most of us here, we would need to sacrifice an unblemished female goat or sheep for our sin or the sin of the family. So there, there were some differences in the animal, but what was common among everyone who offered sin offerings is that they actually had to lay their hand on the head of the animal, and they had to do the deed. They had to slice the, the neck of the animal. And so it was clear, the idea was that the animal was dying, giving its life, actually in their place. And so as you had your head on this animal that was dying, being drained of its lifeblood, it's likely that you actually had a, a mixture of emotions. One being, whoa, God takes my sin seriously. This poor animal has to die because of me, because of my sin. There's also likely the emotion of thankfulness. I'm thankful that it's the animal and not me that's being killed right now. But the, the lifeblood of the sacrificial animal was precious. And we know, of course, that this points to a far greater sacrifice. The, the, the blood of Jesus was far more precious. In fact, you could say that it is eternally precious because it is what redeems and purchases so let's look at verse 15 of our text again, within the context of the verses that came before it. So if you will, look up to verse 13 of, uh, of, of Hebrews chapter 9. He's talking about blood here. For if the blood of gold, goats and bulls and the, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, a couple, couple things here. When we talk about lifeblood and the loss of lifeblood, we're not talking about just, you know, bleeding out an animal a little bit or Christ giving a little bit of blood. We're talking about death, losing lifeblood to the point of death. And one thing that we see in this text that's 
really important is that the new covenant in Christ's blood had retroactive redemption power for people in the old covenant. In other words, the Old Testament saints were saved not through that sacrificial system. All right? That the sin offering they did and the other offerings didn't actually save them from their sins. They were saved by Jesus' death on the cross for their sins, which would come later. So it was retroactive. If you think about it, that's how the, death, that's how the whole day of atonement worked as well. Right? It was retroactive for the unintentional sins of the past year. After the fact. Pastor Kent Hughes writes this about believers in the Old Testament. Believers were saved under the Old Covenant through their obedient faith in God. Demonstrated by their sacrifices as they humbly acknowledged that sin required death. And as they placed their souls under the mercy of God. Their sacrifices were not a means of salvation, but they were evidence of believing faithful hearts. To these, Christ's blood extended is retroactive power. Now those of us who are in the new covenant are beneficiaries of the proactive power of Christ's death. For he has paid for our sins. When he gave us the grace to believe He activated his saving power in our lives, paying for our sins, past, present, and future. So there was a retroactive redemption power that happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross. For our sins and for the sins of those who had gone before who lived by faith in their coming Messiah. Now verse 16 here. Mystery Man gives us an illustration to kind of demonstrate all this concept of death bringing about an inheritance that we'll talk about later. And he uses the illustration of a will. And when you first read this, it's easy to kind of miss it. Um, the, the, the actual Greek word here, diatheke, is the same word that's translated covenant in verse 15. But in verse 16 here, in 17, he's actually talking about a legal will. Okay, not, not a volitional will or a guy na- named Will, but like a will that you write that says, upon my death, my kids or so-and-so get my, my stuff, right? Now, you could be a really wealthy guy or a really wealthy lady and have a will, and, and as long as you're alive, that will really is no good to your kids. And of course, all kinds of books have been written uh, based on that whole supposition, right, novels about, you know, people who had had wills and yet they were hanging on to life by a thread for years. And so maybe you're to be, maybe you're a guarantor, maybe you're to to inherit something, but it doesn't happen until the death of the person who has written the will. So that's what he's talking about here. In verse, in 16, he says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who has made it is alive. So he, here he's talking about the gift, the eternal inheritance of the precious lifeblood of Jesus here. It was poured out for us. And what he's implying here and saying here is that if Jesus had not died, we would not receive the eternal inheritance that he secured for us. So, the shedding of blood, 
the death of Christ is vital here. And he did offer his precious lifeblood for our sake to secure our eternal inheritance. And we're going to consider that, what that means at the very end of our message this morning. But first, before we get to that, we need to, we need to get to our second point, And that is that lifeblood is not only precious, lifeblood is necessary. Lifeblood is necessary. And, and you'll notice in these next verses, verses 18 through 22, the, the word blood is used six times. So if you're sitting here thinking, why are you talking about blood, lifeblood, on like the Sunday before Christmas? Okay, I, I would remind you that this baby came with a mission of redemption. And we need to remember that even at Christmas. Even at, we, we should marvel at the mystery of the incarnation. What a great thing to think about. God coming and being with us. But he had a, he had a mission, a difficult mission. And, and that was because lifeblood is necessary. Look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been, decla- had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Now, mystery man here is referring back to the, the book of Exodus, after God had revealed the Ten Commandments and much of the law to Moses when the people of Israel committed to obeying God's law. This is a time of, of the inauguration of the Old Covenant. And, and here's actually what happened. Okay, In Exodus chapter 24, verse 5, we read, And he, that's Moses, sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Imagine that, all right? We might think, all right, let's have a ceremony where maybe the people anoint themselves with oil. That's what they used to do back in the day, right? Uh, You wanted to really feel wonderful and spiritual, you poured oil on yourself. And we might be like, oh, come on. Well, actually, for them, you know, they didn't have the same shower uh, showers that we have today, and so oil was like a perfume, right? And you would anoint with oil, and it just made you feel fresh and, and wonderful. But that's that's not what God did here. He didn't say, "Yes, let's anoint ourselves with oil to show that we're set apart for the Lord." No, actually, Moses anointed the people, and actually later the tabernacle with blood. Imagine that, having him throw blood at you the blood of these animals, and, and splatter you with animal blood. This got their attention. It was a reminder that death is required if you break the covenant. One pastor wrote, The old covenant sailed on a sea of blood for two vast reasons. First, 
to emphasize the seriousness of sin. Second reason is the costliness of forgiveness. Because death is the payment for sin. And verse 22 sums that up, the necessity of lifeblood. Verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now that the bloody nature of the Old Testament turns some people off. In fact, it invites um, mockery from plenty. But without this foundation, it's impossible to understand the beauty of the gospel. Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life, by the life. Now the Old Testament sacrificial system all pointed to the one perfect, bloody sacrifice. A Messiah who would come into this world as a poor baby, who would grow up to be a homeless traveling preacher, and who would die on a cruel Roman cross as the sin bearer for the world. This is the one of whom John the Baptist cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was talking about a sacrificial lamb. Hundreds of years before John came on the scene, another prophet named Isaiah wrote this of him in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But you may wonder, why was Jesus' lifeblood necessary? If God can do anything, couldn't God just graciously let everybody in? The answer to that is, because God is holy. And because we are not. We are sinful. And when you understand perfect holiness, what the Bible teaches about perfect holiness, you understand that Perfect holiness cannot tolerate the defilement of sin. Just like I, I can't drink my favorite beverage with even a drop of poison in there. I, I can't accept that. God, being truly holy, cannot accept our sin. The danger for us Christians today is not believing that our sin is a big deal. And by implication, therefore, not believing that the blood of Jesus is a big deal. Our sin is a big deal. Because while it hurts others, ultimately, it is against a holy God. And so wrath is His righteous and right response. We should never shrug at our own sin. Our, our sin, in fact, the Bible teaches us, puts us in a position of enmity with God. 
and, and the greatest thing that we need is peace with God. And this morning we read about peace in our Advent reading, right? That the, the angels joyfully sung out to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And sometimes we, we hear that, we, we hear the songs on the radio, and we might think, yeah, it's a great, you know, kind of sentimental feeling of peace, and I long for that, you know, by the fireplace. He's talking about peace between us and a holy and righteous God that cannot tolerate our sin. And about the peace that that brings in our relationships with one another when we have a peaceful relationship with God. And so peace and reconciliation with God for divine lawbreakers like us did not come easy. Not for God. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Remember these words that I said before from a pastor. I'll fill it in a little bit more. The old covenant sailed on a sea of blood for two vast reasons. First, to emphasize the seriousness of sin. The second reason is the costliness of forgiveness. Death is the payment for sin. It will be Christ's life or ours. The bad, the bad news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that lifeblood is necessary. The good news of the gospel is that lifeblood is covered. That's our final point this morning. That lifeblood is covered by Christ. Look at verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. And we, we looked at that last week, how the whole tabernacle was a, was a God-inspired, divinely inspired copy of the actual heavenly throne room of God and the heavenly tent. And so Christ here is talking about went into heaven itself and appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus did it for us. He died in our, for, in our place on the cross. And when he said it is finished, when he said it is finished and yielded up his soul, he ascended into the very throne room of heaven to declare that our sins were covered by his lifeblood. And three days later, he came back to earth he rose from the dead bodily to prove to all that his life, that our lifeblood is eternally covered by, by his. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 expounds on the meaning of all that. And it says, for our sake, he that is God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin. So on the cross... Our sin was placed on Christ. And that is, that is why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because while he was hanging there for those three hours when, when darkness fell, it was, the wrath of God was placed on him because God looked at his son and saw our wickedness. Our wickedness was put on him. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what that means is that when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you repent from your sins and you look to Jesus and you look to him in simple faith, right? Simple faith, but true faith. God not only forgives you of your sin, he doesn't just make you neutral as if you never sinned. He actually puts, imputes the righteousness of Christ onto you. And so God's entire disposition towards you changes. He sees you as beautiful. He sees the righteousness of Christ in you. Now kids, I want you to imagine that you live back in Old Testament times. Do you ever hear Bible stories and you think, oh man, I wish I could have lived back then in the Old Testament? You ever think that? Man, if I could have just seen the, the Red Sea part and the pillar of fire. Well, let me tell you, um, be glad you live today, okay? Um, we really get it good. But imagine you lived back then, okay? Old Testament times, tabernacle system. Your family lives in a little village, okay? Little mud house, mud dirt floor, okay? Little Maybe a little outhouse out back, you know, a little hole in the ground out back to do your business. And you have a small family of sheep in the backyard. Okay, now that would be cool, right? And, and so you've got a few sheep, and you've got this little lamb. Let's say you named it Trixie, because it could do some cool tricks, okay? It's a little furball of a lamb, and you, you know, you, you, you take care of that lamb, you play with that lamb, and that becomes like your best friend, Trixie, your favorite lamb. But every year... Your family has to take a sheep to the tabernacle to be sacrificed. And you always hope it's not Trixie, right? And, and you're always, you know, kind of trying to protect Trixie. And one day your dad says, I'm sorry, it's Trixie's time to go. And you're like, Dad, why? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to kill our lambs, our, our sheep? Why? Why, why? why does this have to happen over and over and over? And the answer was, because we keep sinning over and over and over. And so think of those sins of envy and anger. Being unkind to your little sister. You know, making fun of her nose. You know, that can really hurt her. When, when my sister was little, and I was little too, um, one day I, I told her, and this wasn't very nice, um, I told her that she was really an orangutan, and that she was a science experiment. Now, my sister was a beautiful little girl, and she's a beautiful lady today, and she still reminds me of that, because I went into detail about all the things they did to make her look like a little girl, but she was really an orangutan, all right? Still holds it against me. She, my, my nieces and nephews remind me of it. Um, but the truth is that when we're unkind to our little sister or our little brother, that upsets God. You know, the Lord designed your little sister's nose and her ears. And if you say anything about that, you're actually speaking against the Lord. And that's why sacrifices had to happen over and over because we keep sinning, do we not? Little people, big people. You know, I used to think that, boy, I remember telling my mom once, you know, I can't wait to grow up and not sin so much. 
And she was honest enough to say, you know, big people sin too, maybe even more. We're just better at hiding it. Over and over, so many people had to constantly make sacrifices for sin. The blood of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands over the, over the years, over the centuries. Millions of animals slaughtered because of the sin, the constant sin. But the final sacrifice of Jesus' lifeblood put a final end to all of that. Look at verse 25. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that all those animals who lost their lifeblood over the years pointed to. Are you thankful this morning for his final sacrifice? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now, let's just stop and think about that for a moment. Hear that, okay? Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. No second chance. No reincarnation. It's appointed once. Are you, st- are you ready to stand before a holy God in judgment? Well, you are ready if you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you're covered by the blood of the Lamb, it means that, that you are forgiven indeed. You are covered. Satan has no claim over you. God has no grudge against you, no matter what you did. God only has delight for you as his beloved child. For when he looks at you, he sees the very righteousness of Christ that is covering you. That's what he sees. So are you ready? Are you in Christ today? Verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, of of many, but be sure that you're in him, that he bore your sins. doesn't say all here, it says many. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So are you waiting for him today? What he's talking about here is is, is Christ's final coming. He's already come and dealt with sin. He did that once and for all on the cross. When he comes back, he's coming back to take us home and, and to make this place this broken world to, to, to redeem it, to make it right, to fix it. He actually already redeemed it when he died on the cross, but he's coming to, to inaugurate his kingdom, and, and heaven will come down to earth literally, physically. He's going to reorder, remake this place, but he's going to judge the wicked. So are you waiting eagerly for him to return? And you know, that's, that's a question for us to ask ourselves this Christmas. What is the vision that we have of Jesus Christ. Do we, do we see him as just a baby in a cute nativity set? Or do we see him as the returning king of kings and lord of lords who is coming back in judgment? And he's coming back to make all things right. So as we close this morning, let's look back to verse 15, the verse that started all this sermon. Verse 15 says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what is this eternal inheritance that we have to look forward to? Well, it's nothing less than forgiveness of sin and a clear conscience that we can enjoy right now in our walk with God and our walk through life. I mentioned last week that when we start talking about consciences, that's a very practical reality of the gospel effect. You know, you may think, well, you know, this, all this theology is pie in the sky. What earthly good does it have? Well, well guilty consciences bring destruction of relationships and even employment and depression and human misery and even death, like physical death. But a clean conscience is a gift. To be able to go through life with a clean conscience, knowing that your sins are truly forgiven. You don't have to try to undo stuff. You don't have to try to do more good than, 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 than harm. But Christ paid it all and gave you his gift of, of righteousness. Eternal inheritance means a relationship with God that's marked by peace. And it, and it provides purpose in life, and the clear and the certain hope of eternal life. Are you looking forward to that? Are you looking forward to eternal life? By that I don't mean, yeah, heaven will be great, but first I want to do this, right? That's a very short-sighted view. Hey, I want to get married first, you know? I want to have kids first. I want to accomplish this first. That's very short-sighted because what it means is that you don't have a clue about how awesome heaven's going to be. The only thing I would say, I think it's a righteous thing to say, Lord, would you wait a little bit longer because there are some people that need to have, hear the gospel from me first. I want you to save this person first. I'd say that's a righteous thing. That's a selfless thing. But many of the things that we want to do first really just, just show a very small belief and understanding and even imagination of how awesome eternal life is going to be. So let's put our minds towards heavenly things this Christmas. And to help you do that, let me encourage you just to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye your greatest experiences on earth. Okay? I mean, what wonderful experiences have you had on earth? Maybe it's a beautiful place that you've been, an opportunity God has given you to see something truly amazing in his creation. Maybe it was under the sea, maybe it was up looking at the northern lights, maybe you saw an incredible waterfall or mountain vista, or just sunset over the gulf. What is a beautiful thing that you enjoy? Like if you could paint a picture to live in, what was that like? Maybe it was an emotional highlight, the joy of being with family at Christmas. Or maybe it was the thrill of overcoming a challenge at work or in sports, some, some time that you were able to overcome great obstacles. What have been your greatest experiences on earth? So try to picture that. Now picture the things in your life experience that haven't been so great. Maybe Failures, or disease, cancer, COVID, maybe the betrayal of somebody, 
Maybe someone that you have betrayed, something that you wish did not exist in your life experience. What you need to do is understand that in heaven, those things are completely taken away. And all of those amazing things that you thought of are good, but when God speaks of heaven, he uses superlative terms. So we need to think about heaven more because the hope of eternal life gives us endurance of faith in this life. Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would help us this week as we prepare to um, celebrate Christmas with our families and our loved ones. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to really put our minds on Christ and remember that he came on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. The child grew to be a man who would voluntarily give himself on a cross for our sins. He gave his lifeblood for us and covered us with his own righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would live in gratitude. Lord, I pray that we would reflect his light this week. I pray that we would not get distracted by the stuff and the busyness and the ceremonies, that we would forget the true meaning that in Christ you came to be with us and to save us. Lord, we look forward to the promise, the inheritance that you've promised us through our great high priest. I pray that you'd be worshiped in this final song that we sing from our hearts. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.